When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. The Bowery Boys, episode 106. The Staten Island Ferry. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to a very special episode of the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a solo show this week. This is the first part of a summer-long mini-series. In fact, it'll be shows focusing on the history of New York public transportation. And throughout the course of these episodes, hopefully you'll get a good sense of how New Yorkers have gotten around the city for the past few hundred years. But don't panic. These are standalone episodes as well. So if you came in here just looking for the history of today's topic, the Staten Island Ferry, well, you're in luck. The Staten Island Ferry is, of course, one of New York's most popular tourist attractions. And it's very obvious to see why. It's free. And who doesn't like free? It takes riders through New York Harbor and past the Statue of Liberty and Governor's Island. For thousands of New Yorkers, of course, it's critical to their daily commute. But the Staten Island Ferry is also the last vestige of an entire ferry system that linked Manhattan to its future boroughs and to other destinations along the eastern seaboard. Along the way, I'll mention a drunk vice president, a very scrappy teenager who would become one of the 19th century's most powerful men, and I'll even throw a Supreme Court case in here somehow. In the second half, we'll get to the later history of the Staten Island Ferry, the quirkier vessels in its current fleet, and how it, how it hasn't necessarily proven to be among the safest vessels in the water. How did it go from being almost a luxurious vessel costing a grand total of 25 cents to ride to basically no cents to ride? All that and more on this short journey of the history of the Staten Island Ferry. Staten Island Ferry, or more appropriately, the Staten Island Ferry Service, makes multiple trips a day between Manhattan and Staten Island, usually every 30 minutes, except for rush hour, when there's actually three an hour. The ferry goes to and from the Whitehall Ferry Terminal at the tip of Manhattan, 
crosses down through the New York Harbor and docks at the St. George Ferry Terminal in the neighborhood of St. George. Both those terminals, incidentally, are actually very new, both of them opening in 2005. I should also mention, have a mental map in your head here. We're going to be talking about some locations in Staten Island. St. George is the neighborhood that is the most northeast on Staten Island. Then if you go southward, you'll come across the neighborhoods of Tompkinsville, Stapleton, and Clifton. Now, there is not, of course, one Staten Island ferry, but there's actually eight of them from four different classes of vessels. I'll tell you a little bit about a few of those at the end of the show. This was but one of a number of ferries that used to inhabit the waters of New York throughout its history. In the early days of commuting, when the city was quite small, it it might be the only form of transportation that a person actually rode. Say, a businessman who worked in Brooklyn Heights, for instance, would stroll down to the Fulton Ferry. Right across, it would be jam-packed with people. The ferry would avoid passing ships, and perhaps it would, on occasion, even get stuck on cold days in the frozen water. And when it docked in one of the many terminals that were downtown, people ambled in a rush to get off of this. Now, of course, most things don't change. You can find an equal amount of hubbub and chaos if you watch people getting off the Staten Island Ferry today. For many Staten Islanders, the ferry was the only way to get to the rest of the world. It wouldn't even be connected to Brooklyn until the 1960s. Ferries from Staten Island or Richmond County can be traced as far back as 1740 with a ferry that went to Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And then in 1747 was the first one that went to the southern tip of Manhattan. These ferries were natural outgrowths of farmers wishing to bring their produce or livestock to New York or New Jersey markets for sale. The edge of northern Staten Island was spiked with small wooden landings by 1800, a year when the island's total population was probably only slightly more than 4,000 people. Many of the early ferries were operated by farmers themselves, using specially fitted sailboats called periaugers, which could sometimes fit up to around 20 people. So fairly big for a privately run boat at this time. Initially, these were just for their own personal use, but the more enterprising farmers began charging for the small but growing population of the island. The going rate was actually around 12 cents to New York in 1900, although competition among the other ferry operators would soon drive these prices down quite dramatically. If you lived in Staten Island then, you could choose from a wide variety of small ferry services along the North Shore. You could take Gozen Ryerson's ferry, or Otto Van Tyle's ferry, or the one owned by Thomas Lawrence's distillery at the foot of Jersey Street, a street that still terminates near the North Shore today. On the shore that actually faced into Brooklyn, you could find some services by some rather competitive Dutch families. The ferry service of the Van Duzer clan, for instance. And just to their south, a brand new enthusiastic operation owned by the young son of a prosperous farmer named Cornelius Vanderbilt. These small, sail-operated, unregulated ferries, often piloted by teenagers, were tiny forces to be reckoned with in New York Harbor darting past dozens of larger ships to get to their destinations, often packed with people, spray flying in the faces of the passengers, and, of course, always in fear of being thrown off board and crashing into other vessels. It didn't really help, actually, that competing ferry owners sometimes raced with each other to get to their destinations. The need for speed clearly evident a full hundred years before the invention of the automobile. That young farmer's son, by the way, also named Cornelius, did something quite unique and actually set a schedule for his ferry, an innovation in an age when most boats left only when they were full enough to leave. So you as a passenger could be sitting there for hours waiting for a vessel to hit capacity. 
These small one or two man operations could function in relative peace because Richmond wasn't often taken very seriously, evidenced by the fact that New York's quarantine hospital for infectious diseases was moved here in 1799. But as New Yorkers became richer in the next century, some became attracted to Staten Island's lush topography and its bucolic beauty. As a place for weekend getaways, it does have some very beautiful views of the harbor even today. So it's easy to see the attraction. The most prominent of these new Staten Islanders was a man named Daniel D. Tompkins, who maintained an estate here on the north shore of Staten Island in 1815. Tompkins soon developed his estate into a little settlement, which he naturally and unmodestly called Tompkinsville. He developed this estate during the late 1810s, during his last term as the governor of New York, and during his first term as the vice president of the United States under James Monroe. Interestingly, Tompkinsville was located right next to that quarantine hospital I mentioned, but apparently he did not think this was too much of a distraction for some reason. Tompkins, who, truth be told, was often in debt. And was one of the most notorious drunks in our nation's history. Naturally, wanted to increase the value of his new property, so he developed an access road to Tompkinsville, a road called the Richmond Turnpike that would later become Victory Boulevard, which is still with us today. As part of that new road, and after all, since he was a former governor and all, he received a state charter to build a dock to start his own ferry service here. The Richmond Turnpike Company is actually considered the first official precursor of the Staten Island Ferry, and it's considered that due to its very first vessel that shipped out here. It was called the Nautilus, and it was piloted by one John DeForest. It was a very pricey ride, twenty-five cents actually, very luxe. What made this Nautilus so special, you might ask? It was a steamboat, not a sailboat, not a periauger. And no one else in Staten Island—well, very few people, anyway—were allowed to have one. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham. Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers: The Underground Railroad early and ad-free right now. On Wondery Plus. Now, the invention of the steam engine is, of course, one of the most important inventions of the century, both through the creation of the steamship and its later application for railroads. The steamboat was a marvel—a boat that could basically go where no others could, regardless of the wind or the water current, and could eventually be built to these colossal sizes. 
One of the steamboat's early creators, John Fitch, is rumored to have even tried out an early version of it in the waters of Collect Pond. While that story may in fact be only legend, it underscores how important New York itself was to the development of the steamboat. Now, Fitch wasn't able to do much with this new technology, but one Robert Fulton was, and with the help of a very connected and very wealthy founding father named Robert Livingston, Fulton was able to construct and launch his very first steamboat, the Claremont, in 1807, which traveled from New York to Albany in that lightning pace of 32 hours. What helped Fulton and Livingston achieve this great success was, well, a good old-fashioned unfair advantage, a state-sanctioned monopoly. They, Fulton and Livingston, were the only ones authorized to operate steamships, and anyone operating one that was not authorized in New York Harbor would be arrested. So the Nautilus, that was Tompkins' ferry boat, it had actually been made by Robert Fulton, and the vice president was paying steep license fees to actually operate it. So he was in with Fulton and Livingston. This monopoly was firmly in place by 1820, when a lot of out-of-state operators really began to chip away at its legitimacy. In fact, a challenge was led by a brusque southern steamship owner by the name of Thomas Gibbons, who actually operated out of New Jersey. He hired young Cornelius Vanderbilt as the captain of his boat, the Bolana, and both owner and captain taunted the law with illicit journeys to Manhattan in the steamboat. They soon got the New Jersey legislature involved, and the whole matter was, believe it or not, taken up by the Supreme Court. And so in 1824, they decided to dismantle this monopoly. So it's steamboats for all. The man who most benefited from this decision, of course, was not the owner of the Bellana, but its captain. Vanderbilt, who was 30 years old in 1824, was already operating his very own ferry line on top of captaining the Bellana. The Commodore, as he would soon be called, rapidly branched his enterprise throughout New York Harbor, sending ships up the Hudson River, which was, of course, newly important because of the opening of the Erie Canal, and up and around through the Long Island Sound up to Providence, all the while dismantling or gobbling up his competition along the way. Vanderbilt would send steamships to San Francisco and over to Europe, building boats that would be larger and larger. Around this time, he would become involved with railroads as well, a business decision that would, of course, change the fate of America. But Staten Island was never really that far from his mind. He would build an, a massive estate here and even operated Vanderbilt's Landing, a long set of piers near today's Clifton neighborhood, right there on the northeast shore of Staten Island. And in 1838, he, with relish, I have no doubt, swallowed up his biggest competitor, taking over the state's control of the Richmond Turnpike Company and owning it entirely by 1844. So you had the Hunchback, the Josephine, the Columbus. These were the first few ships in the fleet of Vanderbilt's Staten Island Ferry, which left from these docks on the northeast shore, which I called Vanderbilt's Landing earlier. Now, the land right next to that was owned by a neighboring developer by the name of George Law, who was also a very prominent man in New York City at this time. We'll get to Mr. Law in a moment. In 1851, Vanderbilt would build Staten Island's first railroad here at Vanderbilt's Landing, and over the years, the railroad would be extended until it carried down the entire length of eastern Staten Island. Now, as I mentioned, ferry traveling was often very dangerous, but sometimes just standing and waiting for the ferry was also a tad treacherous. For instance, during a land dispute with this neighbor, Mr. George Law, 
Vanderbilt decided to build a new ferry terminal on what was contested land at the time. Well, when Vanderbilt left on a trip, Law ordered hundreds of men to descend upon the new ferry terminal, who then tore the entire thing down. When Vanderbilt got back, there was nothing waiting for him at the landing. Later in 1852, a crowd that was piling on a pier waiting to board the Hunchback crowded onto this small bridge, which really couldn't hold their weight and ended up collapsing into the water, killing 17 people. Vanderbilt was even indicted for manslaughter for that particular incident. Spoiler alert, he wasn't charged. As the railroad began to come into its own, Vanderbilt, now onto far greater things by this time, relinquished the ferry in 1864 to the developing railroad corporation now called the Staten Island Railway Ferry Company. Although technically it was still a Vanderbilt property, the president was Cornelius' brother, Jacob. During this period, the combined company distinguished itself by expanding the railroad all the way to Staten Island's southernmost edge, Tottenville, and... Oh, yes, being in charge during the worst disaster in New York ferryboat history. It would happen on a ferryboat called the Westfield 2. Now, the Westfield 1 had been in service all of one year when it was permanently loaned to the Union cause during the Civil War and was eventually blown up. Westfield 2 would also blow up on accident. Sitting at dock in Manhattan on July 30th, 1871, when its boiler exploded, killing over 85 passengers and passerbys, and almost sending Jacob Vanderbilt to jail. Spoiler alert, he wasn't charged with anything either. But this horrific event underscored the rather decrepit quality and condition of these ferries by this time, even as the demand for the services increased with the industrialization of Staten Island and its growing population. Even with more passengers and more demand, conditions just did not improve. If you recall in our podcast on Grand Central Terminal, which was another creation by the Vanderbilts, traveler's safety was not often their first priority. Things didn't really get much better in 1884 when the ferries were placed under the control of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. That would be the old B&O Railroad for all of you Monopoly fans out there. So this is 1884. And now we come to the tale of why the ferry terminal is where it is today, at that most northeastern point of Staten Island, and also why it's called St. George. So the B&O, along with a local Staten Island real estate mogul by the name of Erasmus Wyman, they wanted to consolidate all these ferry services, which were sort of up and down the shores of Staten Island. They wanted to consolidate them into one grand terminal. This would make it, of course, very money-saving and would warrant a grand, ostentatious terminal because this was, after all, the Gilded Age. The property they wanted was the property of Staten Island's northeast corner. The property they wanted, however, was still in the hands of one very, very old George Law. That's right, the former rival of Vanderbilt who sat on this very prime piece of real estate at the most northeastern point of Staten Island. After much pleading with the irascible Mr. Law, George actually agreed to relinquish his property over to Staten Island, but only if they heed one very extravagant claim, that the new ferry terminal be named after Mr. Law, but they don't call it Lawville, like Tompkins called Tompkinsville. George Law became the inspiration for St. George Ferry Terminal, a name that would actually go on to apply to the entire neighborhood. So St. George has nothing to do with a saint or religion, just a landowner who wanted some immortality. Despite this negotiation, the B&O's ownership of the ferry would be very short-lived. 
after the newly consolidated five boroughs of New York City took over the Staten Island service after another horrible steamboat explosion on June 14, 1901, a collision of their Northfield ferryboat with another ferry that killed four people. This is obviously not as bad as the Westfield, but this was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. So the city swept in, took over the ferry service in 1905. They also set the price in 1905 to $0.05, cents, which is, of course, far cheaper than it was in the early days, but more expensive than, say, free, like it is today. It would, throughout the years, slowly crawl up all the way to $0.50 cents until the fare was eliminated altogether in 1997. Now, there have been dozens of boats serving as Staten Island ferries throughout the city's 105 years of control. The first five new boats in the fleet were all named after the five boroughs. When Mayor William J. Gaynor died while he was in office, a boat appropriately named Mayor Gaynor was launched in 1914 in his honor. Sometimes after a long career of transportation, the ferry boats go on to other purposes. For instance, like the Cornelius Kolf and the private Joe Merrill. Two boats that served on Rikers Island as floating prisons for over 15 years. The more pleasantly named Miss New York ended up in a more pleasant occupation as a short-lived Art Deco-themed restaurant in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Don't try finding it, though. They scrapped that one a long ago. Apparently didn't work. The current fleet boats are actually named after a rather random bunch of characters. Some examples include the Guy Molinari, a former U.S. House representative and former borough president of Staten Island. You have the Alice Austin, which was named after that amazing Staten Island photographer that I, we actually mentioned in the last episode. The John F. Kennedy, named for the former president. Samuel I. Newhouse, for the publishing mogul. And the Andrew J. Barberi, named for a popular high school football coach. Unfortunately, it was that boat, the Barbieri, that crashed into a concrete pier in October of 2003, killing 11 people. Apparently, they just put that one back into service, however. The current service carries 65,000 passengers a day, the most obviously during rush hour. My advice to all of you who aren't taking it to and from work, who are just there to ride the ferry, and I encourage everyone to. I mean, it's, it's free and it's on a gorgeous day. There's nothing more beautiful to do in the city, in my opinion. But when you get onto Staten Island, don't just take the next one back to New York. Actually find something to do out there. Walk along the North Shore or take a bus and go down to Fort Wadsworth or Richmond Town or visit the Alice Austin house. In fact, if you took the ferry named after Alice Austin, then consider that the fates telling you to go down there and do it. Now, on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, we'll have some photos of the very early vessels in the ferry fleet and other images relating to the show today. Just to remind you, we also have a, our back catalog feed, um, which you can get on iTunes and other podcasting services. And it's similarly named. It's Bowery Boys NYC History. On that feed, you'll find many of our early episodes, and most of them will actually be embedded with images and photographs of the things that we're talking about. Now, in two weeks, Tom will be here, and we're going to jump into another facet of New York public transportation history. Um, this one, I think that you, many of you have been looking forward to for a very long time. So we're getting that together now. We can't wait to present it to you. Thank you for listening to me tell the tale of Staten Island Ferry. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. 
Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas. Or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.